0: in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, and let's pray together and ask God to meet us as we look at his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering, for the privilege of opening your word, for the privilege of singing to you, and thank you that what we have been singing about your grace is true. Lord, I pray that your spirit would meet us now as we look into your word and we see the truth of that grace and the beauty and magnitude and scope of it. Would you captivate our hearts? Would you give us clear vision? Would you make yourself known to us, God? We thank you and trust you by your spirit, Lord, that you would do it this morning and that in return, our hearts would well up in glory and praise to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a a young Christian, just kind of beginning and my walk with the Lord, growing and learning and and trying to figure out this whole thing called Christianity and and how to uh, follow God... Uh, if i 'm honest, my spiritual journey at that season in life was a lot like a roller coaster it wasn 't the you know straight, flat roads of Nebraska that I grew up with. It was New England terrain up and down and around the corners, and never knowing what to expect and uh, i I came to faith late in high school, so I, I grew up going to church and hearing the stories, but the penny never really dropped till later. And when it finally dropped, when I finally came to that realization that God was God and it was the God of the Bible, which meant I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, which is exactly who Jesus is, my Savior who died on the cross for my sin and rose again. When, when I first believed the gospel, there was a, a joy and a peace that marked my life that was beyond description. I, it's an experience I'm sure most of you or many of you here can relate with, you know, to think that, that the God of the universe loves me, that he actually loves me, this guy, that's amazing. And yet, as often is the case, as I began to walk with the Lord and try and kind of find my feet in this relationship with God. That joy and that peace that was so tangible and so clear at the beginning began to fluctuate a bit. So on good days, when I remembered to read my Bible or pray or when I successfully resisted temptation or or something like that, on good days, I felt good. felt good about God. We were tight. It was good on days when I failed to read my Bible or pray or gave in to temptation, I felt pretty rotten and and increasingly insecure. My assumption was that when I obeyed, God loved me more and that life would therefore go well. But when I disobeyed, that meant that the hammer could drop at any moment. The joy and the peace that marked our relationship at first eventually gave way to this subtle but nagging insecurity. Never quite knowing where I was at with God. And so passion was eventually replaced by duty. Doing things, not because necessarily I wanted to, but I knew that was the right thing to do and I should do it. And somebody might see me if I don't do it, and so you do it. You know, I, of course, wanted to change. I wanted that to be different. And so, you know, you join the, the mass uh, quest for the next big, th- big thing in spiritual growth. So some new technique, some new truth or new experience or new book that's going to put all of the pieces together in the silver bullet of spiritual growth that, that I've been looking for and missing. And so you, you just I started out on that quest. And yet it was more, often more of the same, often more of the same, that, that nagging insecurity. I'm guessing I'm probably not alone in that experience of faith. And what was really confusing about it is how sometimes bad things happened on my good days. And so, you know, I've been memorizing scripture or I've been praying, I've been reading my Bible. Why is this happening today? I distinctly remember um, when I was in college, walking to campus one day, thinking about these things and and standing at an intersection, waiting to, to cross the street and being slammed with the realization that I had no clue how to walk with God. I am failing at this daily. I understood that I was saved by grace. I got that part. That my relationship with Christ began not because of something I had done to make it up to him, but because Jesus died for my sin on the cross and he was my hope. I got that part. But I thought that everything else was up to me from here on. I didn't understand that grace not only saves us, but it also sustains us and grows us in our walk. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's grace from beginning to end. And I want to talk about that this morning. The gospel of grace. We have just began looking... uh, We've just begun a new series looking at how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, applies to every aspect of life. That that the good news of Jesus is universally relevant. It changes everything. It affects our home life, our church life, our work life, and so on. That's what the little pictures on the uh, on the front of your worship folder on the banners, that's what those... are are meant to represent these different aspects of life. And so the one in the corner, uh, you know, about 1 o'clock there, that's a mirror. It's a a picture of the gospel in me. What difference does the gospel make in my personal life? And the gospel in the church, kind of going clockwise, the gospel at home, at school, at work, uh, in the the public square, that's a picture of a city there, and to the ends of the earth. That's a a globe in that upper left-hand corner. The gospel truly does change everything. And we're going to begin looking specifically into the mirror next week. The gospel in me. What difference does the good news of God make in our personal lives? So we'll talk about our identity and value as we are united with Christ. We'll talk about our satisfaction and security in Christ. We're going to talk about the gospel and depression That's a a topic that is kind of unfortunately stigmatized in the church, and we just don't talk about it a lot. We need to talk about it. We need to talk about what difference does the good news of Jesus make when I'm in the pit and there's no light coming down from above. We need to go there. And we're going to talk about how the gospel changes us to look and live more like our Savior, personal holiness and obedience. That it's not just up to me, but the good news of God is changing me. And of course, we'll talk about how the gospel gives us hope. So that's where we're going in the next several weeks. But before we look into the mirror and apply the gospel personally in my heart, we need to finish laying a foundation of what exactly it is we're trying to apply. And that's what we've been doing the last few weeks, talking about, first, what is the gospel? What do we mean when we use that word, the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. So we talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then last week we talked about one of the major dangers that we face in applying the gospel to our lives, and that's the temptation to make it more about us than about God. And we looked at specifically at Ephesians 1 and how the good news Of our salvation. Is thoroughly God centered. He's the hero of the story. He's the main character. It benefits us in every way. But it's all about him. We need to get that. Clear and straight. But there's one more stone. That we need to lay. In the foundation this morning. We need to make sure that we understand. The gospel of grace. That. The good news of Jesus is a message of grace from beginning to end. When we talk about applying the gospel, we're talking about applying the grace of God in Jesus Christ to our lives. If we miss that, we'll miss everything else from here on. We've got to be clear that it's grace that makes the good news good. It's grace. And God's grace is sufficient for every facet of the Christian life. And so to help us see that this morning, we're going to look again at the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But what are we talking about when we use the word grace? What is grace? For some of us growing up, grace is what you said before you ate food, you know, we're going to say grace it's the blessing the the meal for others we think of you know maybe poise or charm or elegance you know a very graceful person but when the bible says by grace you have been saved it's talking about something different than the prayer before the meal or you know the elegance of of someone something that we often define as unmerited favor unearned favor so being given something that you don't deserve and that is a that's a good starting definition i think but it's also only part of the biblical picture of grace Uh, because as i mentioned a couple weeks ago when we were talking about what the gospel is and how grace is part of that it's not just that we don't deserve god's salvation it's that we actually deserve the opposite of it we deserve his judgment for our sin. And we need to keep that full orb picture in place. There's a wonderful um, children's book that we sometimes read to our kids called Just the Way You Are. And it tells the story of five orphan children who receive word that they're going to be adopted by the king. And as The word comes to them, and they they hear this announcement. All of the townspeople begin telling them, well, you need to impress the king if you really want to live in his castle, because he's a king. He's just not going to let anybody live there. So you need to to really work hard to impress the king if you want to be adopted. And so the children start, you know, working hard, and each one kind of tries to find something that they're good at in order to impress the king. One does music and another does art and so on. But the youngest child can't find anything that she's really good at. And so she's nervous. When the king finally comes, the older children are too busy practicing for the king to recognize him when he comes to get them. The youngest child recognizes him is ashamed because she's got nothing to offer him but of course the point of it all is that none of them needed to perform for the king to be accepted they were already accepted he already loved them and wanted to adopt them he loved them in their poverty and their loneliness just as they were it's a really beautiful picture of god's grace when God comes to adopt us, he isn't, he isn't looking for us to give him something to you know, pay our rent in his family or whatever. He isn't looking for us to impress him. Grace comes to us just as we are. And yet I've always kind of wished that the story would be a little bit different. I always thought it would be a little bit more powerful and precise if the children in the book weren't just lonely and helpless, but were actually plotting a coup to take over the kingdom and knock the king off of his throne and take it for themselves. Not only would that make it a little bit more action and such, but I think it's a little bit closer to the biblical picture of grace. Grace comes to us in our poverty and weakness. That is so true. It comes to us when we can do nothing for ourselves. But more than that, it catches us in the act of treason and still says to us, I love you. I want you to come and be my child. I'm going to forgive you and clean you up and give you a home forever. That is grace. Grace is more than unmerited favor. It's being given something indescribably wonderful, even though we deserve something utterly terrible. Or to quote Jerry Bridges, as I often like to do, it's God's unmerited favor toward those who deserve only his wrath. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. That's that picture. Paul is is writing in this letter to a church of mostly Gentiles, non-Jews, people who have have not grown up as part of the covenant people, but who have now been brought near through Jesus Christ. And he wants them to understand what he says in verse 7 as the immeasurable riches of God's grace. To do that, to help them understand that, he starts by reminding them just how bad they were before Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Gentiles weren't alone in this. All humanity. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the truth of our spiritual condition apart from Jesus Christ. It's poor and weak and and helpless, yes, but more than that, we're dead, spiritually dead in our sins and our transgressions, walking not toward God, but in the absolute opposite direction, not following God's ways, but actually following the ways of the accuser, the spirit of the who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Satan. We are by nature children of wrath, he says. Children who deserve God's holy judgment for our tre- our, our treasonous rebellions. We're, we're not neutral apart from Christ. We're deplorable. That's the picture. And it, it's kind of, that's rough, Paul, thanks, you know. But but if we don't get that, if we don't acknowledge that how bad it is apart from Christ, we will never truly understand how incredible it is to be cleansed of all of that and to be accepted into his family. We will never truly get how amazing grace is. Listen to the centrality of grace as Paul continues in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even while we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to notice two things here. First, how awesome is the salvation that we receive from God to be made alive together with Christ, to be raised with Him and seated with Him. We are forgiven of our sins, we are given new life, and we have the inheritance of heaven as our promise. That's incredible. But second, notice how we contributed nothing to the process, except for our sin. That's what we bring to the table. God's love came to us even when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were helpless and hopeless and and unable to do anything. God's grace caught us in the act of treason and still gave us the gift of life. That's grace. By grace you have been saved. And we receive that gift by faith, not by works. Not by earning it through our behavior or cleaning our lives up so that that we can be presentable to God, but through faith, by trusting in what Jesus has already done for us on the cross. Otherwise, it's no longer a gift. If it's by works, it's not a gift. Valentine's Day is coming up. I was waiting for a collective moment of panic among the men there, but Still got a few weeks. Don't worry. But I mean, if you were married or dating, and, and and you were to buy your sweetheart some flowers, and give them to her, and she were to respond by, you know, pulling out her pocketbook and saying, "That's great. How much do I owe you?" Kind of defeats the purpose of the gift, doesn't it? In fact, it's no longer a gift once that happens. It's a transaction. If being rescued from our sin and beginning a relationship with Christ were something that we did on the basis of our works for God, of of our performance for Him, cleaning up our behavior, doing more good things than bad, or whatever way you want to paint that. Recycling or or picking up trash along whatever we want to, whatever category we want to fit that into, if that's the basis of For our salvation, it's no longer grace. It's no longer a gift. But God's grace doesn't ask us to put on a show or to impress Him in order to be accepted and adopted or to make it up. And if He did ask us for that, we'd be out of luck because we can't. His grace comes to us just as we are in all our sin, and weakness and spiritual death and says to us i love you i want you to be my child and my son has done everything necessary to make that happen trust him and live we begin our relationship with christ by grace But if we keep reading in Ephesians, we see that that is not all that grace does. Grace comes to us as we are, but it does not leave us as it finds us. God's grace changes us. It strengthens us to grow in our relationship and to look more and more like Jesus, our Savior. Put another way, we we may not be saved by works. We're not. But we are saved for them. We are saved for obedience to God. And we see that in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the purpose of our salvation is not just to save us from hell. But to redeem us and restore us to joyful service, service as part of God's kingdom. As one of his children the christian life is not just about beginning with christ it's also about walking with christ and here's the point i want us to get this morning that too is also by grace it's also by grace not only do we begin by grace we also grow by grace Again, we see this all over Ephesians. We're saved by grace in chapter 2, but notice how Paul describes his own ministry in chapter 3. How he is equipped for his ministry by grace. Verses 7 and 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So it's not as though Paul began with grace and then it was just kind of up to him to figure out how to become an apostle and do this ministry and and make this impact for Jesus. It was the grace of God that called him and equipped him. The same grace that equips us in chapter 4, Ephesians 4 verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What's he talking about here? Why is God giving us grace here? He's talking about our role in helping build up the people of God, the church. He continues in verse 11. He gave, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We each play a role in helping the church of God mature and become more and more like Jesus. And it's God's grace that equips us for that role. So we begin by grace, but we grow and we serve by grace as well. Which means we never outgrow our need for the gospel of Jesus. But this is the point that I didn't get for a long time in my faith. And that so many of us either don't get or we just easily forget. And we just fall back into this, saved by grace, it's all up to me from now on. And, and I want us to see what happens then. I mean, when we forget that it's all of grace, it's then that we find ourselves suddenly in line for the roller coaster. That's when we find our joy, the joy of our salvation, slipping away and replaced by insecurity and anxiety in my relationship with God and, and frankly, then all of life that's when we find ourselves relying on our own strength, our own creativity, our own resolve, the new resource, the new fad and spiritual growth in order to get things done for God and make Jesus happy, which invariably leads to a cycle of pride, frustration, and despair. How many of us, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but it would be interesting To think about, if I had to describe my daily relationship with Christ, what words, maybe put it this way, would I think of joy or quiet desperation? Which of those two describes my daily relationship with Christ? We know the right answer is supposed to be joy. But which one really is it and why? I think this one is so common and I think it's because we're missing the centrality of grace and I want to I want to illustrate that for us what happens when we depend on the gospel of grace for beginning with Christ but then try and live the Christian life on our own and some of you will have seen this illustration uh, before it's something I learned from Jerry Bridges years ago and I've seen others use it Uh, but If you think, I don't know how clear it's going to show up. Go ahead and and do the first one. So there's a timeline for you, all right? Very simple. You think of of that line as a timeline of your life. And before Christ, that life is marked by what Paul describes as spiritual blindness and and hard-heartedness and ignorance and hopelessness and sin. It sounds harsh. And, of course, we all know you know non Christians who are very good people but but if if God's the standard for what that means then yeah we're we're in pretty bad shape, and so that's our our experience and then we come to a point in our life where, upon hearing the gospel, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth, that our eyes are open to finally see God for who he really is in all of his holiness and his power we become aware that god really is god and he's big and he's beautiful and he's holy and perfect and magnificent which at the same time makes us aware of how sinful we are before him and so there's this gap between god and his holiness and me and my sin and there's nothing i can do on my own to close that gap but that's why god sent his son jesus By grace, you have been saved. It's in his grace, on the basis of what Christ has done in his perfect life, and his his death on the cross as an offering for our sin, that that we are cleansed of it, and we begin a relationship with God. The gospel bridges the gap. We turn from sin, we trust in him, we begin our relationship by grace. And then life moves on. And, of course, as a Christian, I I want to grow in my relationship with God. I want to know him more. I want to serve him. He's done so much for me, and 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 I try and do that. But as you get to know God better, spending time in his word and prayer with his people, something happens. Your awareness of God's holiness increases. And you see him More and more clearly. He's not more holy than he was before. I'm just more aware of how holy he is. But, of course, as your awareness of God's holiness grows, so does your awareness of your own sin before him. You see more clearly God in his beauty, and that makes my selfishness and my sinfulness all the more plain to me. And so, all of a sudden, the gap is back. There's a gap between holiness of God and my sin. And the question is, what is it that bridges that gap now in my heart at this stage of the journey? What is it that bridges that gap now? I know I'm saved. I've begun with Christ. But how do I walk? If I view the gospel of grace as only sufficient to begin with Christ, but not to grow with him then my dependence on the gospel is going to stay the same size at every point in my journey. Which means I'm going to have to figure out some other way to close the gap between God's holiness and my sin. And there's two things that I'm most likely to do. The first is to pretend. I see the difference. Grace got me in, but it's not closing it now. And so so I need to pretend that I'm not really that bad. That's what we do. We look at God's holiness and our sin, and the shame and guilt of it is simply too much to bear, and so we pretend that we're not that sinful, that, that sin isn't really that sinful. There's some variation. We hide it. We hide ourselves. We walk through life wearing a mask because we're terrified of what people might do to us, of how they might treat us if they could really see What I see when I look in the mirror. We even try and build a wall in our relationship with God. And that intimacy that that once defined our relationship grows thin. Because I, I just don't feel like I can be honest about my sin. Because I'm afraid of what God will say if I am. And so I have to pretend. Hide. The second way that we try and close the gap. Back. Uh, Back up the slides just a little bit. Um, Go back one for me. There we go. The second way that we try and pretend uh, or close the gap on our own is to perform. So we pretend by, by minimizing our sin, but then we perform and put on a show for God. We try and make ourselves look like a good Christian, doing all the right things, showing up for church, reading the right books. Posting the right blogs on our Facebook feed so everybody knows, you know, I'm down with that. And and make sure people know I'm a good Christian because otherwise, again, we're afraid that that, that the gap is too big. And so we try and make it up to God. We might bargain with God. Lord, I know I've messed up again, but I promise I'm going to do better for you. Please don't let the hammer fall. I've got this. I can do this. So we pretend and we perform. And and of course, the reality is that neither of these things can actually close the gap, can they? We're not good enough to make it up. And our sin doesn't go away just by hiding it. And so we're just caught in this cycle of insecurity and anxiety and shame. In fact, there's only two possible destinations for trying to relate to God in this way. Either pride or despair. That's where this is going to land you. Pride when we perform well and we begin to believe that we really can close the gap on our own. Or despair when we inevitably realize that we're never going to close it. We're never going to make it up or be good enough. We just have to slug it out in the Christian life. Try and you know make sure to hide from others and wait for the hammer to fall. So, if, if performing and pretending can't actually close the gap, then, then the question is, what can? And the answer is that it's the same thing that closed it in the first place. It's the gospel of grace. The gospel tells us that sin really is sinful. We don't have to minimize it. We can't minimize it. It really is sinful because God really is holy It says, at the very same time, grace really is sufficient because Jesus' blood really was enough. And both of those things are true at the same time. And so as our awareness of God's holiness grows, and with it our awareness of our own sin, so our dependence on the grace of God through Jesus must grow at every single stage of life. It's not that the gospel gets Truer, It's always true. It's that I'm depending on it more and more and more. That's why we never outgrow our need for the gospel. Jerry Bridges writes, Every day of our Christian experience should be a day of relating to God on the basis of his grace alone. We're not only saved by grace, but we also live by grace every day. And so when I do well, guess what? I still need God's grace. And when I mess up, guess what? His grace is still enough. To quote Bridges again, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. It's grace from beginning to end. And it applies to every facet of the Christian life. And God's grace really can change us. You know, Sometimes we think, no, it, it, it's, it's got to be rules. It's got to be uh, my own resolve. That's what's going to get results. But God's grace is the only thing that really can change us. You listen to the Apostle Paul in Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people... Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So grace teaches us to say no to sin. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace teaches us how to walk with God. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession are zealous for good works, if you're zealous for good works, if you're zealous to see obedience happen, the only way you're going to get there is by grace. That's how Paul gets there. He starts with grace, and guess what? The result is a people zealous to walk with God. Grace teaches us to live holy lives much more than the law by itself ever could. You think of, you know, you need rules We need to know God's law. We need to know what God expects of his people. But the law by itself has never changed anybody's heart. Grace is what makes our obedience possible. As John Barrage once wrote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings if grace really is enough and I don't have to pretend and I don't have to perform, what does that do to my walk with God? I mean, that's the question we're going to be answering all year, but let's just think about it for a moment. It gives me security and peace. The Lord's not going to leave me when I mess up. That's amazing. There's so much security and peace in that. Even when it feels like he has left, he's still there. It gives me joy even when my circumstances stink. Because as bad as things can get in this life, if I have Jesus and I'm accepted by God through him, I'm doing way better than I deserve. And there's there's something to rejoice in that. In fact, I'm doing so good, I have the entire inheritance of heaven waiting for me. There's something to rejoice in that. It gives me humility and honesty. I can be honest about how sinful I am because I've got an adequate solution grace. And at the same time, it gives me hope. I know this isn't the end of the story. Grace has brought me safe this far, but grace is going to lead me home. God's grace will not fail, it frees me from guilt reminding me once again that Christ died once for all. It's not just that, okay, I trusted Jesus, and okay, from this point in my past, that's all good, and now, whew, I better keep it up, because I don't want him to have to go back to the cross again or something. God, Jesus gave his life once for all time, all people, all sin. Hebrews 10.14 tells us, for by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy and changed into the likeness of Christ. Grace gives me perspective and wisdom as I try and navigate life or try and help others grow in their walk. It's it's a power. It's also a pattern. Jared Wilson summarizes, The message of every other religious system, without exception, is predicated on some variation of three words, get to work. The utter uniqueness of the Christian message, the heart of the gospel, is found in the three words of Christ from the cross, it is finished. We can no more wring life change out of religion, doing things for God, than we can make orange juice from an apple. But if we cling to the cross, remaining aware of our own powerlessness and desperately trusting in it is finished, the sufficiency of grace, we will find power and peace to worshipfully work in freedom and with joy. That's the difference the gospel of Jesus makes, not just for how I begin with Christ, but how I walk with him every day. And my prayer for us this year is that we would see and experience how grace really does change everything. Gracious Father, what a needy lot we are. And what a beloved family you have made us. Thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray that whatever questions, whatever fears, whatever insecurities or anxieties or frustrations we have brought with us, that your message of grace would speak peace and joy into every heart. Lord, would you help us realize and remember that it's not just grace that saves us, it's grace that strengthens us and changes us, and that it's not up to me but your grace is sufficient give us the strength to respond to your grace Lord you call us to obey we want to but let us do it based on what you've done for us not what we think we can do for you and let us taste again the joy of and the peace, and the security, and the freedom that comes from walking by grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.